For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, uh, I have a couple things to tell you. One is that um, I'm sick. That's why I sound like this. And another is that uh, we got a sponsor this week. It's a new podcast. It's called Time Sensitive. It's an interview show uh, with the leading minds in business, arts, beyond, all people who have a distinct perspective on time. The show gets deep, gets personal, uh, gets into people's crafts, writing, art, music, design. They've had a bunch of really interesting folks on since they launched back in May. Uh, And the episode that went up today is with the New York Times architecture critic Michael Kimmelman. He's been at the paper since 1990, and he talks about his whole career, which included 17 years as the chief art critic at the Times. Time Sensitive has released uh, 14 episodes so far. They're about to wrap their first season, so go check it out. You can go to timesensitive.fm for the full experience. They've got transcripts of the interviews, show notes, corresponding visuals, all that stuff. They've got a newsletter you can sign up for. But also, of course, you can find Time Sensitive, the podcast, wherever you are listening to the Longform Podcast which starts right now. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host. Aaron, how are you, sir? Getting lonely on this show. At what point do we bring in a uh, Evan replacement? (laughs) The the, the Evan scab? Uh, He's coming back. He's coming back. He'll be back, I think, next week, week after. Also, maybe never, but... uh, What, uh, What are we doing on the show this week? It's a uh, exciting one. A long time coming. The return of Gia Tolentino. I uh, I've heard a lot about this Gia Tolentino book. I believe that I did not get a copy because you headed off a <laughs> copy that came to long form at the pass, uh, which I would now like uh, to borrow. But this uh, the book is like totally original. It's not it's not a pre published stuff. It's like no, new essays, right? Yeah, it's a collection of essays. Um, a couple of them are online now just as excerpts of the book, but, it, uh, they're all new. Uh, she wrote them over the last year, sort of on like nights and weekends around her job at the New Yorker, which is also a new development since she was on the show a couple of years ago. Um, one, one important note for this one. I actually talked to her a couple of weeks ago before the book came out. And, uh, it's a lot about that kind of moment uh, before your book comes out and this thing you've worked on for so long is about to be out in the world. Um, so that it's a, it's a, you know, it's like a little bit of a time capsule because her book is now out. It came out, uh, yesterday. It's called trick mirror 
and it's getting all sorts of uh, insane attention. All of it totally deserved. So I know that we've caught uh, some flack for doing too many book episodes on the show. Show that is uh, ostensibly about a long form uh, magazine. Uh, journalism. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Max, what we're trying to do uh, is reflect on the uh, changing careers in writing that exist today. And it does seem like a lot of those careers that uh, maybe started on the internet uh, are ending up in the book realm for probably a variety of reasons. Yeah, I think I think that is right. I think there's some economic reasons why that's happening, both economic reasons about magazines and about book publishing. Uh, but then there's also this thing which feels to me like um, this is episode 354. I'm impressed that you were able to just summon that from the ether. <laughs> I'm not sure if you had given me the over or under at 350 if I even knew which side we were on. But my point is, like, we are also in some cycle where people who came on the show several years ago who were early in their careers and who we were incredibly excited about uh, are now hitting this point in their careers where they're writing books. Yeah. It's the process of human aging. (laughs) Yeah, the process of human aging, the process of podcast aging is part of what's happening here. So I feel like, uh, yeah, we have caught a little bit of flack for uh, having so many people on who have books out, but... um, there are good reasons for it. Who uh, who is bringing us the show this week? Oh uh, man, you know who you know who's sponsoring the show this week? Mailchimp. Mailchimp, that's right. And uh, particularly this project they do every summer called Read This Summer, uh, in which they pick a author to bring a group of authors to the Decatur Book Festival. This year it's Jenna Wortham. She's got an incredible lineup. You can find all of their books at readthissummer.com, and then you can go to the Decatur Book Festival in September and uh, go see him in person. If you're looking for something to read this August, readthesummer.com. Thanks to MailChimp for making that happen, for making this happen, uh, for just generally being themselves. All right, here is uh, Max and uh, repeat caller Gia Tolentino. Hey, Gia. Hi, Max. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I am uh I'm so happy to have you back. Last time we talked it was in front of a room full of people. Uh-huh, that's right. Uh room room full of aspiring young writers. Yeah. You dashed their dreams. I, did I? No, not at all. Yeah. And then uh, my recollection of how it went was we talked at this uh, University of, of Pittsburgh event, and then we went and drank like very cheap drinks in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and then had a whole other conversation about like what you were going to do with the rest of your life. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting, and then I made you come back to the studio, and we talked about it again. Yes. And I feel like the whole thing that we talked about in the second half of that thing was like, you were at Jezebel. And I was kind of pushing on, like, what are you going to do next? Yeah, what are you going to do when you grow up? Yeah, what happens next? And then... I was uh, like, I don't know. I don't sit- know, man. <laughs> Lay off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dad? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was asking a bunch of uh, annoyingly personal and unnecessary questions. And then, like, a bunch of things happened. Yeah, I think that was maybe less than six months before I left Jezebel. Something like that. Yeah, I was on to something. And I was like, I'm never going to leave. I fucking love it. And I, I did love it. <laughs> I didn't leave because I didn't love it. I understand. Yeah, I left because Peter Thiel sued Gawker into the ground. And also because The New Yorker hired me. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. That, that's a, a pretty formidable one-two punch. Yeah, I was thinking about that last conversation earlier today. And I was like, hmm, you've grown up, Gia. 
grown up a little, just a little. Yeah, you like uh, taking myself more seriously or something, which kind of no, not like obviously not in the actual way. Because you walked in here with just incredible airs. Yeah, (laughs) no, no, no. I mean, you caught me at a time where, like, all of my life, I found it almost impossible to think in the future past about four months. And the writing the book was the first time that I had to consciously be like, in two years, I'm going to be doing something for two full years or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd, never, I'd literally never done that about anything before in my life. <laughs> and so I feel like you have to take yourself a little more seriously to be like, what do I want my life to look like in two years? And thinking that far ahead was a big step for me. How'd it go? Great, actually. But kind of sad that I'm not stumbling completely blind through every decision I make, which is really how I prefer to live. And I like to let my like subconscious machinations decide what I'm doing for me and just be blank. But the book was like, you have to write a proposal and decide to do it. And that felt like a good thing that I need to learn how to do. Like I need to set goals. All right. <laughs> I need to be a person with goals. And now I have none. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. You got to have like, you got to have some floating around. I actually, you're okay. I do have some goals. Um, one of my goals is to, at some point in the near future, write a piece about an ordinary person going through something wild. Like I've never like reported like a really long thing about like I, the things that I've reported for the New Yorker magazine have mostly been like about phenomena. And I have a couple of profiles, but I want to try to write something really long and report it about an ordinary person. But going through something wild. Yeah. Or just going through an interesting situation, mm-hmm. going through navigating a maybe a tricky legal situation that illuminates something about, you know, our policy world or I don't know, just, yeah. And that feels like... Um, That's something that, I don't know how to do. It would be like a significant shift. Well, it would be something I don't know how to do. And I think it's harder to find those stories. Like, I, I want to get better at finding stories. It's kind of a goal. How, how do you find them now? Everything I've written for the magazine has kind of been, like, I haven't... I'm working on something right now that I pitch, which is the first thing I've ever written for the magazine that I myself have pitched. Everything else been assigned. Everything else has been assigned because my blessed editor, David Hagland, like knows me very well and knows my interests and was like, hey, do you want to write about vaping? And I was like, you know, sent him 9000 exclamation points. And I was like, I thought, you know, the five words every woman wants to hear, you know, <laughs> like I was just like, I've all of my life, I've waited for someone to say, do you want to write about vaping? And he did. So, yeah, I'm but for the website, I pitch that stuff just based on whatever I'm thinking about. Like mm-hmm. mostly that's just but magazine stuff. I'm not. I don't have the like story finding sense that well yet. Okay. Yeah. Well, you got a goal. I got a goal. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have some questions about about the book and the whole timeline of that thing too. But um, I actually don't understand the relationship very well of like New Yorker editor and staff writer. Mm. And like, is it available to you to be like, uh, I'm not going to do that one? Yeah. Does that happen as yeah. often as you say yes? No. 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 Because again, like my. So everyone has a different type of relationship. Like my editor edits me for both the magazine and the website. Not everyone has that relationship. So mm-hmm. he, I think, has a sort of unusually holistic understanding of anything that I'm doing at any given time, like especially for someone kind of my age there or something like that. Like, So he's kind of known everything that I've been thinking about ever since I started there. Right. So usually a suggestion is a good one. 
Like, it's one that I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. Like, I would love to write about this athleisure thing because he knew that I'd been thinking about it. He knew that I'd written about it in the books. He was like, you should do this. I mean, they are really blessedly big on write about the things that excite, like, truly. And so there have been a couple. And actually, early on, like, there were a couple of assignments, like, print assignments that got kind of offered as possibilities. And I was like, I'm actually not. I don't think I'm capable of doing that well yet. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, Can you think of an example of that? Yeah, but I feel like it might be bad form to say. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know? Because um, the person who did it ended up... But, yeah. Like, there were like pieces that ended up actually going in the magazine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And did you read them and you were like, oh, yeah, I, I was not quite ready yeah. to do that? Yeah, yeah. Like, generally, I am confident enough in myself that when I feel that I'm not ready for something, I trust that. Like, I am not a believer in imposter syndrome as it relates to myself because I am overconfident if anything Mm -hmm. and so I I was like I don't know how to write a profile I the first profile I wrote for them was Gloria Allred and I was like okay I can do this because I have such a natural familiarity with what's going on with feminism like with the stakes and the context of what this profile will be so I was like that will anchor me and I will like learn a little bit how to write this profile on this but there's still a lot of things like reporting wise that I'm I'm actively kind of learning how to do, I think. Well, I mean, maybe we can use that profile as an example. Like, who is she? Help people who might not know, understand. But then also, like, what are you learning on the fly when you're doing that piece? So Gloria Allred, right, like, um, famous sort of tabloidy lawyer. Um, She has a reputation as being kind of an ambulance chaser, but has, you know, like, she represents, like, Tiger Woods' mistress. You know, like, she has gotten this reputation at the same time that she I followed her throughout the Cosby case and she like she is so deeply committed. She's 70 and she basically the tension in that story was, is she trying to get famous as this idea of a feminist attorney or is she really about that? Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that I had to figure out. And I don't know. Um, I think just the profile writing itself is terrifying to me. You know, it's like you. You are presenting a narrative of someone's selfhood and you're kind of in control of how that's presented and it feels like a little too much power to have over someone (laughs) you know even though like obviously you know you're profiling people who are like have a lot of power but it's you know thinking about a piece generally being like i can trust myself to get this right is one thing Mm -hmm. when it's like i can trust myself to get you is you know yeah i'm gonna sum you up yeah that's really audacious and and I think maybe I'm just a little I was a little intimidated by that. I still am maybe like it's it just seems like a, a responsibility. You just I want to go into things being like, yeah, I think like I mostly think I can do this and it'll be it'll push me out like this much more in these ways. Are you thinking at all about like uh, what her reaction to it will be? Or are you able to get that out of your head? I mostly don't think about that. I have such a high internal bar for fairness, I think. I think. With every piece I've reported, I've always been petrified that it's unfair somehow. You know, that I've just totally, totally, like, misinterpreted the situation or I'm being wildly unfair. Mm -hmm. But I am now understanding that that's kind of a natural and probably healthy corrective reflex that kind of ensures that I'm not that unfair, probably. Mm Mm-hmm. So what, you're, uh, what, like two years in? Three years in? What year? <laughs> what year is it? <laughs> when? I think, so we talked in early we? 2016, something like that. Yeah, I guess so. And I left Jezebel in the summer of 2016. So like three years. Yeah, 
three years. I've been there for three years, yeah. How closely has it hewn to like what your expectation was? If you can um, think back to then. So again, part of my thing about not thinking about the future is that I generally have no expectations of anything, which is, again, something that generally serves me really well because it's just like whatever happens will happen. <laughs> and so I... Where does that come from? Um, <laughs> being an idiot, <laughs> you know, like having a brain that likes to be blank. Like I really think that that's true. Yeah, and also, you know, I probably just have some chip missing somewhere. Like I really... I'm really rooted in the present day, really live in the present. Um, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I was like, I just realized that when a person turns 30, they are finishing their 30th year of life, not beginning it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like my brain's been I broken for. <laughs> I still don't actually totally understand that. See, it's confusing. It's, it's confusing. Okay. Yeah. That makes like, me feel like, so your brain is also broken. Well, zero is a weird age. Yeah. That's the that's the I think that's the that's the uh, where the confusion starts. Don't you think when someone turns thirty, it's like welcome to your thirtieth year? That's what it feels like. It just it just feels like yeah, but that's not what it is. It's like you've you, done you've, you've welcome to your thirty first year. Yeah, which doesn't yeah, seem I like what a birthday should be. Zero is kind of bullshit. Like you could you could come out at one. That that makes no sense. <laughs> Zero is the issue. Yeah. Anyway, right. So this is what I mean. Like, like my brain doesn't work properly, and clearly neither does yours. And um, yeah. So my expectations, I, I expected that it would be very intimidating, which it has not been. People have been very nice there, and like I was scared at the first ideas meeting. You know, I mean, I I worked in like the Gawker office where I was like always like in my jean shorts vaping you know and you know obviously i'm not going to roll into conde like <laughs> you know like screaming fuck you know <laughs> like um so I, I was intimidated at first but it wasn't nearly as intimidating as i thought it would be people were like very generous and like not dunking on my ideas at the ideas meeting and like everyone was nice and people like were very friendly to me and like reached out and made me feel at home which i wasn't necessarily expecting I also wasn't expecting, I assumed that I would mostly be writing about books and music. Like I assumed that I was there to sort of cover culture broadly. Did you assume that because that, that's what they told you? That is kind of what they told me, but they left it pretty open. And that was also what people that were, as we talked about on this, the last time when people were kind of trying to get me to take, like offering jobs, it was all like books and music. So I just thought that's what I was could do. And it has been incredibly nice to not only write about that and you know for them to like I wasn't expecting to ever write about politics it's nice to be able to do that sometimes and I also I think I expected my writing style to heal to become a little more New Yorkery than it has mm -hmm. I think it's still it is kind of New Yorkery in the magazine but not so much on the website yeah I mean I feel like um my wife my wife <laughs> is pretty like like, even that, I was like, wow, she really got that in The New Yorker. I know. <laughs> yeah, I get to write about dumb stuff. It's really nice. Yeah. Uh, it, we'll put it in the show notes. But um, I wrote about my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wrote like a uh, my wife essay. Yeah. Which is, was also uh, great, but it, it was when I was reading it. I was like, wow. Yeah, New Yorker's really lowering its standards. <laughs> <laughs> Something's happening here. I'm not quite yeah, sure what yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, obviously, they brought me on at a time when there was a conscious desire to shake things up a little bit, especially yeah. on the website. And I am very glad for that. Yeah, because like, you know, 
I got the phrase um, real men eat ass in my um, jewel piece. And I was like, hell yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> I'm still me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like you need to just like uh, yeah, cut all those out and put them like on I know. a wall somewhere. I know. Yeah. There's like, like, I got what's your dick like in, in one as well. Um, yeah. Like they've, New York has been a very <laughs> welcoming place <laughs> for my horrible self. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to put Gia on hold for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about a sponsor making today's show possible. It's Substack, and Substack is uh, pretty cool. It's a publishing platform that lets writers make money from subscriptions. So uh, they handle all of the financial transaction stuff and allow you just to put your stuff out in the world and get people to, wait for it, actually pay for your work. This week's featured Substack writer is Grace Liberty. She's the publisher of The Stage Mirror, which you can find at grace.substack.com. Grace is an emerging writer. Uh, she's an associate professor of English at UC Berkeley and the author of Quaint, Exquisite, Victorian Aesthetics and the Idea of Japan. Her Substack newsletter, The Stage Mirror, explores trans questions within a feminist frame, often with a, a really healthy dose of humor. Grace presents critical essays on novels, films, poetry, music, critical theory, uh, haircuts, psychoanalysis, a whole lot more, all in a style that's both energetic and erudite. You can subscribe to The Stage Mirror for a 20% discount by going to grace.substack.com slash longform. Again, that's grace.substack.com slash longform. There are tons of really fantastic Substacks out there. I recommend you go check them out and support some writers. But for now, let's get back to Gia. Has it changed your work? Has it changed what you're interested in working there? Like three years ago, I feel like you were in the grind. Like mm. you were you were in the content grind. Deep in the content grind. And there were there were these moments where you were allowed to break out of it or you could find the space to break out of it a little bit and do something that was uh, long. Not just long, but something that you wanted to do. Like mm. I feel like those interviews were mm. like outside the grind. Like the with the man who had sex with a dolphin. For example. Yeah. Uh, I mean like solid grind too. If but... anyone is listening, like this is making me sound even like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, These are all your greatest hits. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some thinking to do after this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but uh, like uh, the abortion one too. Like yeah. they, there, was, there were these moments where it felt like you broke out of that, but still it was like there was a bunch of stuff that had to go up every day. And you yeah, had to for touch sure. a lot of that and write some of that. And that is what I was getting tired of doing. Totally. Yeah. And I wonder how it has affected. Yeah. It's not just your writing, but the way that your brain works, mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. out of that grind? Well, one thing that it has done is, so when you are editing a blog, you have to sort of muster a small amount of interest in anything that you touch. So when you're kind of reading over, kind of copy editing every single blog post that makes it on the website, you are thinking about so much stuff and applying like some sort of critical thought and feigning or mustering the appropriate amount of editorial interest in, you know, someone's news aggregation about some shit that you don't actually really care about, but like you can make a case for why one could. Right. And I was editing people all the time. And so I would get because, you know, when you edit something, you feel invested in it. So my investment was sort of 360 degrees. It was sort of like a I'm picturing like a sonar and 
there were objects everywhere. And my real interest was pinging constantly. And left to my own devices, working only with my own work, I'm interested in fewer things. Mm. And it's really nice to admit that. And it's also kind of like that terrified me when I first started. Like I was just like, I felt like I was in a soundproof room, you know? I felt like going from the sidewalk to a soundproof room and I was just like, holy shit, it's just me in here. I'm just supposed to write about whatever I think, you right. know, like shifting from that type of editing to just writing felt crazy. And now it feels really freeing, like there's more space in my brain. And that's amazing. But it also feels a little um, kind of feels a little sad, you know, because I I kind of miss having other people's ideas to grab onto and really engage with in my own real work, not just as a reader. And so it's changed what I'm interested in in that I'm interested in less. Luckily, I'm still interested in nearly everything. <laughs> but, you know, but it's not like, I mean, Jezebel, the volume is just so wild. Right. And, and, you know, then I went to writing twice a week for the New Yorker's website. And now it's less, like maybe once a week a little less than that and like longer pieces throughout the year. And so my attention is just, as it should be, it's narrowing on whatever I'm writing on, which feels good and bad. <laughs> no, it mostly feels good. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you've been writing about, or at least one strain of what I feel like you've been writing about is like literally the management of attention. Mm. Like, it, 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 I think about it a lot. Yeah, and but in, in particular, because it felt to me like I have read that stuff sort of as like, I just got all this space in my day because I had that experience too. Like when I was like steadily blogging or even like editing long form, I could kind of tell myself that like being on the internet all day was like a job requirement. Mm. Like I had to, mm -hmm. but I actually probably didn't even come close to having to. You kind of had to. Well, maybe. I don't know. You, you could have cut it down. You could have definitely could have cut it yeah, down. Like yeah, there yeah. was many, many hours where yeah. I was just waiting for something to come up. Yeah. And... I, that, I don't do like, that anymore. Right. Like once that's gone, yeah. that creates a whole bunch of space in your life. Uh, yeah. You're really like alone with the existential horror and magic of being alive. <laughs> right, well, you, yeah. You can't make an excuse for uh, scrolling all day. Yeah. And I, when my idea bank is dry, I will spend a week just scrolling Twitter and being like, what am I doing? Like it's A, a mistake. Um, Are you sure about that? It's not always a mistake because it means that when a wife thing happens, you know, I can write like a stupid thing about like, oh, I have a mental library of every wife joke that's ever been made on the Internet. You know, um, It's not a mistake. It does give me a I think like it's kind of embarrassing to be someone who writes about discourse, you know, but it gives me I think uh, like one thing that Jezebel was really good for is it gave me a really solid understanding of Internet dynamics and just how like the physics of opinion and favor kind of work on the internet, I think. And that's been useful, like seeing little undercurrents and how people are talking is something that I ends up in my work. But I, uh, yeah, and there's something monstrous about, like I was just thinking um, the year that I spent in the Peace Corps was the year that memes happened, 2010, basically. It was, I think, the year that it was like Charlie bit my finger and like the, you know, the bed intruder guy. And I came back and everyone was talking about memes and I had had no internet for a year. And I, like my reaction to everything back then was extremely strong and strange, but it made me want to like burst into tears every, like, like the, the meaninglessness of them was so intensely 
obvious to me when I had just come back from the Peace Corps and, and now it's like what I write about, <laughs> you know? And I was thinking about this, like I was on a panel um, a couple of weeks ago with Linda Holmes and Emily Nussbaum and Taffy Ackner and someone asked a question. She was like, I don't mean this in a rude way, but she was like, I'm a news producer and like, do you guys ever feel any conflict between writing about pop culture and, you know, given what's going on? And I was like, this was not a majority opinion but I was like, I feel horrendously guilty about it every single day. <laughs> and like I do, um, even though I'm really glad to be able to at the same time that like maybe I should write about wife stuff. You know, like I'm glad to be able to write about wife stuff. It's fun to write about wife guys. But I feel so much guilt about, you know, that being a thing that I'm good at is writing about this dumb shit. <laughs> we haven't only been writing about dumb shit. No, that's true. And I think I'm always trying to build like some sort of tiny little invisible bridge between the dumb shit and something more important. But anyway, just to say like writing about the Internet, which I'm doing more and more, it feels like I'm trying to dodge and weave the ridiculousness of it, you know, like. Oh, wait, I want to go back to the invisible bridge now. Uh, uh-huh. What is like, like, help me understand what that if there is any connection, what that connection is, or is it literally just like when you're not writing about all the bad stuff, mm-hmm. like, is that just like kind of wrong? And it's like only right to write about the good no, stuff. No, no, it's not what make- I mean either. Right. Yeah. Cause it's not like, um, I just, okay. Like, like when I wrote about like large adult sons for the New Yorker, like there's like kind of a point underneath it. And then what I try to do is just not like someone after that, like tweeted at me every day for like two weeks being like, why didn't you mention that all of them are white? And I was like, that's the point of the piece. I just didn't say it, you know. And so I've been like kind of playing with like sometimes I will do that is mm-hmm. like have the most obvious conclusion not be stated. And like, that's what I mean about the invisible bridge. Yeah, like yeah, there's yeah. like a there's you finish the piece and there's an obvious step you take onto some idea. But it would be kind of fake deep if you like wait a piece about a meme being like and that's racial politics in america for you you know (laughs) like it's sort of like playing with like how can you write about dumb stuff in a way that does reckon with the fact that everything that we think about is connected and cultural phenomena are related to political ones always and economic ones always and discomfort and humor like are always related to these larger things um but I don't know. Like, I, like so when people people have been I've been doing book promo and people are like, what's your book about? And I'm having to, like, clamp my hand over my mouth to not be like, it's about knowledge being useless. <laughs> you know, why do you have to clamp your hand over your mouth? Well, sometimes I am just saying it like now, but um, sometimes it's not the right venue <laughs> to be like, oh, you know, it's about how no matter how hard you think about things like, you know, it's about how ideas are paralyzing and knowledge is useless. And the more we know about things, the less, you know, like. Not everyone is really wanting to hear this shit. Yeah. Like, um, well, one, I feel like the people who listen to this actually are. So, like, uh, what's your book about? Well, okay. One answer to that is that it's, I mean, it's about nine things that I was obsessed enough about to write 10,000 words on and that I couldn't write these things in any other venue. You can't write a baggy 10,000 word essay that goes all over the place, that, like circling one subject, you know, for 10,000 words. You can't really do that definitely can't do it in the New Yorker and yeah the New Yorker like should not run my you know 9,000 word anxiety dream about weddings like and so it's just things that I'm obsessed with it's also like the connection between them it's 
situations in my life and in culture that seem particularly conducive to self-deception, like things that give you an idea about yourself that is possibly entirely wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that dilemma interesting. They're also about things that I'm incredibly attracted to and incredibly repulsed by at the same time, which I think is a kind of chemistry that animates a lot of the things I'm interested in. Like I, I like to have strong conflicting emotions about something. And I guess I generally do about being alive. <laughs> um, but also, you know, like, I think what it's really about is, so I say in the the first essay is about the internet. And one of the things that I write about in it is, you know, the internet makes you kind of brutally aware of the how unsatisfying it is to be, to know about things that you can't change. And that you can't change for reasons that are related to the systems that the internet is accelerating and splintering Mm -hmm. and setting on fire. And in general, I sort of feel, you know, my job, a job that a writer has is to try to make sense of things. But it often feels these days that what is the fucking use of making sense of something? You know, it's sort of like people have been like this whole week, people were taping this the week that like Trump said that, you know, go back to your country, whatever. And it's sort of like, how many new ways can we find to write about the fact that this man's racist? You know, like we've known this since the 80s, like he's been openly racist, like a deeper and more backed up and more brilliantly said way, you know, like all any there's nothing else to be done by saying that he's racist, you know, understanding exactly how the GOP is tolerating this. You know, it's like a we're trying to understand things and the idea that this understanding will lead to something doesn't seem to me like a proposition I can trust. Mm -hmm. And so it's partly like the book is partly me trying to figure out how, like what can be gained from trying to figure out things that you are not sure you can ever change, (laughs) you know, like what is there a, a way to understand the world and it's, current level of there are all of these currents of sort of futility and like systemic madness running through it that kind of seem intractable and it's like is there an immorality and it's like is there a way to think about morality when our systems are like this is there is there a value to making sense of something in this world where knowledge seems to end at knowledge a Mm -hmm. lot of the times like and it's sort of like the note that i close the book on like it's like you know i I have complicated feelings about weddings. I think I figured out why. Doesn't matter at all. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to change my life to know this shit. You know, <laughs> how much of the book uh, do you think is about you? Oh, this is a terrible sales pitch. Fuck. No, no, it's, no, fine. It's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you, no, seriously. Uh, how how much of it is um, how much of it is about you? Interesting question. Ev- everything is rooted in some like deeply personal interest. But there's like a like the ecstasy essay. I would say is like seventy five percent about me. The scammer essay is like ten percent about me. Like it, mm-hmm. it kind of tilts. Yeah, there's a range. Those. Yeah, like Emma and my friend Pooja, like they read the book like right after I finished, like a very early draft of it, and they were like, "There's a lot of you in here." I was like, "Oh, I guess there is." There... Like it hadn't occurred to me before. Really? 
Kind of. Well, there is a lot of you in there. It's sort of like you're at the bar and you're talking to someone and, and like you realize you've just like revealed your entire life to them. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, sure. All the time. Yeah, it happens to me all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like I have all of a sudden like told them like how I lost my virginity and like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and it's like, this is a stranger. And I'm just like this. And I'm like this in my writing. I'm like this in how I interact with the internet, how I interact with friends, strangers, whatever. And it's clearly how I interacted with writing the book. And I was like, oh, yes. Hmm. I guess I did excerpt my journal from seventh grade, you know? Like, quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Like, you relied a lot on, like, the GR. I had to fact check myself, you know? Yeah, I mean, but here's the thing. That actually wasn't, like, a question about, like, how does it feel to have revealed yourself in this way in the mm, book? Yeah. It was more like what I was really struck by throughout it, I mean, particularly in the internet essay and in the piece you wrote about growing up in this mega church in Houston and, and finding your way out of it. My I, Bible teacher sent me an email apologizing to me. Really? After that ran in the New Yorker. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I think she was still, it was very generous and nice of her. I think she was still a little bit trying to be like, this little lamb isn't lost yet. Yeah. You know, like she was like, if you ever need to talk, I was like, thank you very much. <laughs> you didn't write like a long thing back. I was like, thank you so much for emailing me this. It was really generous of you. And I was like, I appreciate she was really she was like you deserved a better version of God than what we gave you and I was like that's really wow real and I think I did like I that's amazing because that also must mean that it has been a point of serious conversation in that community well right? I don't she's no she in particular this one bible teacher I mean I took daily bible class every day from first to twelfth grade yeah. um this is just one of many uh she's no longer at the church but yeah, I thought it was really, really wonderful of her. And I was just like, thank you for saying so. And I was like, I've never regretted it for a second. So thank you. Like, You've never regretted that experience for a second? Yeah, I've never regretted any of the discomfort that I felt for a second. It was useful. How so? I never get uncomfortable now. Really? Yeah. I am almost impossible to make uncomfortable. It happens maybe once a year. What does it? I wrote about one once and I wrote an essay about being or like it's the same thing as like being offended because I think to be offended you have to take things personally and um, I don't take things personally very often and I wrote about people getting offended on the internet for an essay in Jezebel like in 2015 or something like that and I got offended like I got uncomfortable when a guy I saw I was like at Lollapalooza and a guy in VIP had a shirt with the North Face logo and it said rape your face on it and I walked up to him and I was like hi I'm a reporter for Jezebel I'd love to talk to you about your shirt you know and he was like um, you know just being a bro and I was like have you ever raped someone's face and and his friend was like yo you gotta stay and find out baby and I got so mad you know I got so mad and that did make me uncomfortable like that raised my heart rate and that is an unusual feel. it takes something like that mm -hmm. um, like a real thing and the church was so strange that it just it was not possible to be uncomfortable all the time and it was weird all the time <laughs> you know I was like getting bridal veils put on me in eighth grade bible class being like imagine yourself as the bride of Christ like it's so strange that you can't and it, it was, was unsustainable to be uncomfortable for that long and it was strange to you then yeah 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 I mean a lot more was it was the kind of thing where like in my journal I would write about it just like mm, like they did the thing with the veils again, you know, but clearly underneath there was some deep discomfort. Like yeah. it just hadn't surfaced. All right. There's two things I want to go back and ask you about. Yeah, sorry. I, mean, <laughs> I have no, no idea what I'm talking about. One of them was uh, the reason I asked you that question about how much of you is in there. Yeah. Is a thing that I was struck by reading it was how easily it felt to me like you were able to switch between your own experience and these ideas. Mm. And I could never 
you know, I mean, the scammer essay is one thing, right? It's like all the way kind of on idea and then yeah. some other ones that are in the other direction. But for most of the book, it's like I could actually not quite tell what was leading. Mm. I couldn't tell what was really the genesis of it, whether mm-hmm. it was your own experience or whether it was the idea. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was asking. About. I was just like, what was driving you? It was like when you were sitting down to write these things, was it like, well, this thing that happened to me or this moment that happened in a bar class, you know, in some high rise and in the financial district or, or whatever it is, like that's a jump off for an essay or mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. you've been playing around with some idea and you realize that also you just happen to fit into this cultural thing. Yeah, that's a, this is a good question. And I think the way that I am interested in the world is very experiential. Like I like to do things. Like in my life, I have manifested a very strong tendency to do things so that I can learn more about how the world works, such as go on a reality TV show. You know, and obviously, who knows what my motivation was, but there is some like deep instinct in me that just wants to do it. Like, I'm still mad I wasn't at Fire Festival. You know what I mean? Like, I just like put me in hell, you know, like, <laughs> like I want I want to experience things firsthand and I like to push into discomfort firsthand and I like to. Like at UVA, I was like, mm, I'm curious about the Greek system, so I'm just going to participate in it for four years, you know, and I have wanted to learn about the world by doing things. And that has given me the interest that I have, you know, so like, and so like, I can't separate what I find most sort of like troubling and attractive and repulsive about the world from the things that I've experienced. Right. So all of my interests, like things that I have done were the it's like the scaffolding that the vine is are growing around or something. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess maybe this is a stretch, but like growing up in this gigantic mega church yeah. of like thousands and thousands and thousands of yeah. people of which your family was a part and it was like the defining sort of centerpiece of your family's life, but you didn't actually feel like fully a part of it. Yeah. I feel completely at home anywhere I am, but never fully a part of anything. Right. It's like you can be in a sorority for four years yeah. at the University of Virginia and be like, I was just curious about what that was like yeah. for other people. So I did it myself, yeah. but I'm not completely one of the people who did it. Yeah. That dynamic, I feel like, is in like all these essays where yeah. you're like, you're also a person wearing incredibly expensive athleisure at a bar class. Yeah. But you're sort of interested in what that's like. And then a full half of my brain is like taking notes. Yeah. But I think that's like this has always been how I've been like I and the part that's participating. I mean, you know, to like with the sorority, it's different because it was just so transparently bullshit from the beginning or like the Greek system itself, not the sorority. The Greek system itself was so like the gender structure of it was so wild and the racial structure. But the part of me that's like there, it's like, you know. When I was like shotgunning a beer, you know, in someone's room, I was fully there shotgunning the beer. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. I like when I'm doing something, I'm I'm doing it. It's just that like I you could say that the part of me that's like always worrying, you know, the part of me that was at the, on the reality TV show being like, so like what other shows have you worked? Are you talking to the cameraman being like, you know, what is it like? Like the, the part, the proto journalistic part that was mm-hmm. always going. I don't think it necessarily detracts from I think it might actually intensify my lived experience right like the the conflict that i feel from half my brain makes me really alive to whatever i'm feeling i think like mm-hmm. i have noticed 
every crazy thing that a bar instructor has said, you know, that's ostensibly about bar that is but is actually about being a woman under patriarchy. <laughs> um, you know, like two days ago, she was like, I know it hurts, but soon it's going to stop hurting. And that's when the change happens. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> you know, it's just always the stuff like the part of me that is critiquing constantly is has made me really alive to everything that these women say and what they look like and how their ponytail moves and what the light looks like in the room. Like, I think that this is how I participate in the world, maybe. Mm -hmm. There's also, like, the how much is about yourself is sort of, there's, like, a parallel operating question that's, like, how much of today's culture is about the self in general? Right. And the answer seems to be, like, most of it. Yeah, lion's share. The lion's share. (laughs) You know, and it's, like, if... If the central organ of contemporary life is the Internet and the Internet is all structured around platforms that position yourself as the center of the whole world, it's the book is about selfhood in that way. Mm -hmm. And mine's just the easiest example I have to write about. Kind of like it's the evidence that's readily available to me. (laughs) Well, you were saying this thing before. That was the other thing I want to follow up on was uh, that that you, you don't take things personally. No. Is that something that changed or is like, are you hardwired that way? I think I might be hardwired that way. I mean, it also might be something that I have worked to do very slowly for a long time because I just think that you might as well, you know, live in the world that way. And like, that's a very specific kind of not taking things personal. Like, obviously, I do take things personally in that I route much of my experience through like, you know, I mean myself is extremely present in my writing. Like in some ways, like I understand everything through a personal lens to some degree. Like one thing that's been interesting about The New Yorker, one thing I was really not expecting was that um, one of the most common edits I get, not just from my editor, but like from top, you know, like anytime it's going up through people is like, why don't you start this in the first person? I'm like, what? Yeah. Fuck, you know? (laughs) And it it has made me be like, is this... The note is basically more Gia. Yeah, and it makes me a little uncomfortable comfortable not because they're not right but I think maybe that's why I want to write a long piece about someone else where I can't be like and here's the part where I pop in (laughs) to like um show you my stakes you know like for example me exactly yeah and I don't think I do it gratuitously but I do know that it's a muscle that I use a lot and I want to try not using it all for something very long and yeah well it's also like a a muscle that's in really good shape because that that's what i'm saying is like it was hard to tell reading the book like what was driving yeah which is rare it's usually like what do you mean what do you what what else like when you read a book you can you tell what's driving the yeah i feel like nine times out of ten if someone shows up in a piece it's pretty clear whether something happened to them and they were like, oh, this, there's something more that I want to explore with mm. this experience I had. Or they had an idea and they were like, I can use this little thing to illustrate mm-hmm. my idea. And it felt, your book felt different to me. Mm-hmm. It felt like it was mm. rarely clear to me which one of those things had been the genesis. Mm-hmm. I think that there was a question for each essay that I wanted to answer. Th- that's like one way that I went about it. Like... When I wrote the book proposal, I basically it was like nine questions and like nine mental like sheets of flypaper and then me just like throwing things that had happened to me and things that I had read and things that I thought that I could look into at them. And once there was like enough there, I was like, okay, I can answer this question with everything that I think I can bring to it. And a lot of it just happened to be. But it's I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Um, But okay, not taking things personally. I. I just. 
I just don't. Like, <laughs> I've talked about this before, but it's like, um, this was something that I thought about constantly at Jezebel is that people would write personal essays and um, in the comments, people would be like, well, I wouldn't have done that. You know, like they would take the essay personally, you know, as like a, a referendum on their own, not even their decisions, their own potential decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Like their own, just their ambient selfhood. They'd be like, your choices are, you know, like disturbing me, you know? And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, of course you wouldn't have done what they did because otherwise you would be them having their life, you know? So yeah. Like, and I just thought about this constantly, and I, I was never able to understand what it is that made people feel involved. And, and that's what the internet, like, the internet kind of programmatically creates the illusion that we're involved in everything, right? It's like, what do you have to say about this that will reflect something that you want to project about you? Like, that's the effective question that every social media, that Twitter especially, is asking. And it's like... A lot of the world has n nothing to do with me, you know, right. like most almost everything has nothing to do with. Yeah, me. vast, vast majority. Anything somebody thinks like someone's opinion, fucking nothing to do with me, <laughs> you know, like and that's and I just still don't understand that. But what about when that person's opinion is, about, is like literally about you? I don't know. I've been wondering. Um, so as soon as I got the book deal, I freaked out. And I was like, fuck, it's going to be bad. You're going to write a bad book. What if you write a bad book? And then I was like, okay, how? what's the worst it could be, Gia? And I wrote down all the worst things that I thought it could be. And then I was like, that's fine. <laughs> like, I literally was like, I was feeling my heart palpitate. I was just like, yeah. oh, no. Oh, no. And then I was- Do you remember I, anything that was on that list? Oh, I don't know. One one thing I was thinking, I, I wonder what my reaction will be when, when I get like a really accurate- bad review i wonder if i will take it personally like that'll be a real test of this chip <laughs> if it's really missing yeah it's a great chip to have missing i think so too um but it probably has diseased my heart in other ways <laughs> well this is always like um i i mean you know it is related to other things like i truly not much bothers me and um i mean not much bothers me in like the really intense personal way like a lot everything bothers me about the world but um like the fight that i always have with my partner is like he's always like why don't you care about this more and i was like why don't you care about this less you know and i think that the quality of being able to um turn off taking things extremely seriously is not always a good one you know in like yeah. one's personal life but um and also the way I, like interact with the world like i just like drop shit on the ground but um but it's also like a good uh compass right because if you give a shit then it's probably worth giving a shit about yes yeah. Well, and I give a shit about a, a lot of things. Like, you know, like all, this whole book is things that I deeply give a shit about. But, um, you know, I, I fully am a believer that it's like, you know, people's opinions of me unless I know them. Like, I care deeply about what my friends think of me. And but people I don't know, I really, really, really don't care. But and I wonder how publishing a book will kind of change that calculus i think one thing i have been thinking i've been thinking about like what are the bad things that that will appear in a lot of critiques like the you know the three quarters down the review where it's like not everything lands right. with such a punch you know <laughs> what i mean like like that that thing it's like in every like a novel like other of every... essays miss that energy exactly yeah, yeah. exactly exactly and it's like with the novels it's just that turning point like it's in the review it's always there 
Um, and then, and then the like the sum up line is like, but in the end, like <laughs> we go on living. <laughs> like sometimes someone's gonna like uh, really fuck with the book review format and just lead with the like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, there's one thing that didn't really work in this book, but then the rest is all the yeah, good stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. But one thing that I think people will say is that it's like none of these thoughts are particularly new, and I'm like, I know, I know. <laughs> Like, I don't generally think I'm generating new thoughts. I I generally think that I'm trying to put thoughts that everyone has extremely clearly. Like, I never think I'm having a new thought. And um, I think the energy with which I can write can lead people to think that I think I'm extremely original when it's like, I really don't. <laughs> I think I'm just good at being clear. You're just articulating what everyone's thinking about. I often think that. Or not, you know, not what everyone, you know, yeah. I don't, not like the voice of like, you know, what everyone's thinking about. Yeah. But I do think that that is like, uh, you know, maybe that is like a reason to spend some time looking at the the ocean of social media, like tracking the, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I think that people will be like, you know, nothing is particular. You know, these ideas aren't new. And I'll be like, that's cool. It's true. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've had all these people on this year. I don't know. There's something about like the particular like half-life cycle that we're in how many years that we've been doing the show yeah uh seven wow i know it's there's wow so, there's so many of them yeah but anyway we're at some weird point in the second where, where there's a bunch of people who we talked to like three or four years ago yeah whose books came out yeah yeah, yeah. like you're like come we, back when you write the book and they're like hello max hey, i've uh, written that book i'm here with the book now <laughs> yeah, yeah but most of the people we've talked to uh it's like uh, after the books come out mm. and um i haven't talked to anyone yet before before you're like three weeks out or something yeah what is this what is this moment like i don't want to sound like a dick um (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) um you know i think at some level i must be extremely stressed because my blood pressure is extremely high but i feel fine Um, i'm mostly stressed because i didn't take time off work and i have to report a piece the whole time that like I'm leaving tomorrow at 7 a.m. I'm kind of stressed about getting my work done. But it feels kind of overwhelmingly good to talk to people who have read the book and who have thought about it. Like that feels crazy. And I feel like kind of freakishly overwhelmed by, you know, them having put together thoughts about it and then talk to me about them. You know, there's so many writers that spend so much time just being like, will anyone ever read this? And I haven't had that deep anxiety for a long time and like I've been thinking about and like maybe that's part of my guilt about like knowing that if I like write a wife piece people will read it and that kind of makes me feel embarrassed or something yeah so that part feels really great but also like disturbing (laughs) like you know like overwhelmingly it's like sort of like someone being really nice to you in a vulnerable moment you feel kind of like rattled Mm -hmm. I also like I miss writing. Like I like writing. And I the reason one of the reasons I wanted to work on this book was I worked on a novel for 4 years and shelved it and I loved that and I missed writing in private and I I wanted to see what it, I sounded like when I was writing for myself and writing without anyone seeing anything for um you know a year and a half except for Carrie Fry who helped me edit the book. God bless Carrie Fry. Like before I turned it into my actual editor, <laughs> um, it felt really nice to have something that you were doing in secret. And how did you actually do it? What do you mean? Like, where did you fit it into your life? 
I poorly, like I should have taken time off. I took a month off and went to McDowell and it was the best month of my life. Like, oh my God, like bringing you picnic baskets and no, no cell phone service. It was just incredible. Um, I, what I did was carry, like, I was like, Carrie, give me deadlines, like give me nine deadlines and I will make them because I've never missed a deadline. And I was like, I need to treat this as nine essays that I'm writing for like a magazine or something like a fake magazine that allows me to write 10,000 words about this shit, you know. And so I just was like one at a time. And I had I proposed the book exactly as I delivered it. It was like, I want to write these nine essays. I had done enough like pre-research when I pitched it. Um, to know that I wanted to write all of them and could spend a year and a half working on these ideas because they interested me just enough. But what I did was the first weekend of every month, I went upstate, like got an Airbnb somewhere and wrote as much of a shitty first draft as I could. And then I had like something. Mm -hmm. And then I just like I worked a lot on weekends and but I really liked it. I really liked the private work of it. Mm -hmm. And um, part of me, like, there's this weird, like, discomfort with, um, you know, it sort of feels like, you know, like Splash Mountain in Disney World. You ever been on Splash Mountain? Sure. It's like you're kind of in the chill part where it's like you're in the little thing and it's like Br'er Rabbit and you're in the little, you know, and like that, except for slightly agonizing was what writing the book felt like, you know, like kind of chill and like private and then all of a sudden like you emerge into the sun <laughs> you know and, yeah. and then like something's about to happen to the ride and that sort of it's it's just like it's weird for a private object to become public even though that's the whole thing that a book is <laughs> right and that was the whole idea but yeah it, but... that was the whole idea but well honestly i mean i i do i wanted people to read this and i i hope they do but um i didn't think past the point of finishing the book like, you know, me, me being like, I'm going to set a goal and then do it. It was just like, I'm going to finish the book. I didn't mm. think about anything afterwards. So this feels like very strange. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what happens now? I don't know. <laughs> hey, do you have another like uh, two year plan? Or are you back in like, I can't think past four months? Yeah, I'm, I'm setting small goals, like trying to report a piece about, you know, an ordinary person. And I have zero interest in writing another book anytime soon like I, I had no How interest come? in writing a book until because I wanted this specific experience of like there was like there were nine things I wanted to go super long on and like learn everything I could about and now I learned about them yeah. and I don't have like a thing that I'm dying to learn about right now and so like certainly not to like have another book like <laughs> I'm not really motivated by like you know people always talk about like you know you love to have written and like not to write. And I also love to have written, <laughs> you know, like there's such a, like the feeling of closing a, a story that you've worked on for months is a new one for me. And the relief and the sort of relief that it's been fact checked to hell and like, you're good and it's done. Yeah. I love that feeling. But generally like, I like writing. Like I like, I like, um like Deborah Eisenberg once said it about short stories, but I think it a lot about writing in general. Um, she talks about writing as like making a set of givens yield, you know, that you just like have this thing in front of you and then suddenly like something yields and there's suddenly more space and like there's something suddenly kind of new. And that feeling is really, even though like I have to start writing a draft that I'm like, oh no, like I, I'm deeply dreading trying to do that right now, like this week. But um, I find it really fun. Did you know where most of these essays were going to land at the end? Um, no, I started each with a question and had no idea where they were going to land. And I don't think they really land 
anywhere. <laughs> I'm really doing the worst job of promoting this book. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Do you think, like, I don't think that any of them are particularly conclusive. No, but it's less... Um, but just where they land in general. It's less about where they land and more that it felt to me as... It's interesting to hear you describe writing the book that way because that's kind of how it felt reading it was you knew that these were like things you were really interested in. Yeah. And it felt a little bit to me reading it like you were like, yeah, let's see where my brain takes me on this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, I had no idea. This, this seems like fertile territory. Yeah. It was like hang out in this for a while. I mean, that's how I pitched it. It was like I pre I researched everything and I was like, okay, I can read these books and I can look at these cases and, you know, and I was like, I bet... This is just all worth looking at together for some reason that will be satisfying in ways that I will figure out. I mean, this is also like this is one of the things that I love the most about writing is you get to figure you get to actively figure things out. And like the worst kind of writing is where nothing is figured out and you start and end the piece on the same idea. And I hate that. Right. But there's a distinction between figuring it out over the course of a piece and also like literally figuring it out by writing, which is what most people do No. No, I don't think so. I think mm. lots. I, th- I mean, I think lots of people have pretty pretty clear ideas when they go in. Yeah, I almost never do. And I mean, you said that to me before that like the way you figure out what you think is by writing. Yeah, I like can't think other than writing. I have no. My brain will not hold more than one thought at a time. <laughs> it has to go out, and then so I can look at it, be like, "That's what I'm thinking." <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I I wonder if I mean, even still, like with stuff you report, that's also that's the natural structure of reporting, too. Right. And it's like you have a question and you have to figure it out. Yeah. I just think lots of people that have come on the show sit down before they have really written anything Uh and have a crazy outline. Yeah. With every piece and of of everything they want to use and where it's going to go and every beat and it's laid out. Interesting. And it gets written up. Wow. I mean, we're like splitting hairs here a little bit because like at some point they had to figure out where everything went but it does feel slightly different to me to like actually just do it through the writing i think also one thing that i was trying to do here was to i mean in general i have felt like the 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 intolerable deeply regrettable certainty that all of media had leading up to the election that i shared in like there's like a smugness in my own righteousness that I can read in like my pre-election coverage of like Trump and Hillary where I'm like, we all know that's horrible. But like there's just this underlying sense of movement that like we know what's going to happen in the end. Yeah. It was so repulsive. My version was repulsive to me. The larger version was repulsive to me. And I basically um, the day of the election um, or like the morning after I was just like. I'm never going to make that mistake again. And I don't know if I've overcorrected, but I certainly have never. I don't want to be back in that space of like, it doesn't feel to me like that space of certainty. Like this is just a holistic thing that like ended up woven into the fabric of this book. Like I just, I in general cannot find any way to map any feeling of certainty onto the world that we live in at all. And it really hasn't changed much since that morning. And I think that was like another thing I was trying to do was like, can you have a book with uncertainty in its DNA Mm -hmm. and in its whatever conclusions it might have that is still useful in some way? You know, that's still like 
can you be sharp and uncertain at the same time? Like, can you come to something and like generate something worthwhile in this space of deep uncertainty? It's sort of like the question of like, can you generate hope in with a background of a of deep futility? Um, and can you like access a sense of morality in this atmosphere of immorality? And like, what does that look like? And what and how does it look different from a morality that exists in a more moral world, you know, and a certainty that's not in this world. Like the type of certainty I might have accessed if Trump hadn't won the election and, you know, if we had a different climate policy, you know, all this stuff. Um, I just was trying to see how uncertain I could be while also doing something that was like somehow worthwhile. And clear. Yeah, and clear. Like how clear can you be when what is happening is completely unclear. And also, like, what kind of clarity can come from uncertainty? Like, if if there's so much un- uncertainty in the air, then a clarity about the world can be accessed by writing about that uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or so so I think. Do you feel like you did that? I think I did it about as well as I could. <laughs> yeah. And I am, I am glad that, like, one question that I haven't been able to answer is you know like what's the takeaway and i was like there are none (laughs) there's literally none (laughs) i mean there are some maybe but there's not a you should go live like this you know and i think that's what a lot of books about i think that's what a lot of people subconsciously or consciously want out of books that are like this one about right now i mean i think that's true in every form of media of any kind is anything that offers any semblance of context for the moment that we're living in appears to be getting like gobbled up in incredible degrees even when that context is wildly thin and has a shelf life of like three hours yeah but what people also want out of that stuff is like kind of a road map of yeah 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 Yeah, here's like the next three things you should do yeah and i'm just i don't know i don't know like and i don't know i was i was doing an interview and a woman was like um the a producer that was pre-interviewing me for something was like do you identify as a defeatist? And I was like, and that really rocked me to my core because I really, really don't. But I was like, fuck, have I made a huge mistake in in doing the thing where you, you know, I was sort of trying to like write this with enough energy that the idea would be that there would be some sort of invisible forward momentum or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I obviously am not going to put that in writing and make the essays bad. Um, and she's like, do you identify, like, are you defeatist? And I was like, no. So you're a defeatist. <laughs> yeah. And but it really um that that did give me some doubts about the strategy with which I wrote this book. Like leaning into that uncertainty. Yeah, but people thing. are gonna put on whatever they see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also um yeah, like I think like I both feel extremely fatalistic all the time and extremely happy to be alive. <laughs> you know, and I think yeah. uh maybe the two are yeah, they're related, clearly. So yeah, and you're uh, into like uh, strongly contrasting emotions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to show you this, uh, which is. <laughs> oh my god! If you <laughs> last time you played my never mind. I'm not even going to say it because. No, you should say it. I feel like the last time this ended up in you completely owning me by finding like my old acapella group. Which is please funny. do not even say the name though. <laughs> Let it lie in history. The Virginia Bells? Stop! No, but the uh, the, <laughs> the thing I was going to say, I was preparing to talk to you again. Yeah. And uh, and then I was, thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about like this moment you were in, talk like three years ago, and I was giving you all this shit for what you were going to do next. Yeah. 
And now you're in this moment where like, you're writing for the New Yorker, you seem to be writing about literally anything you want. I think like the invisible bridge is actually like pretty clear between these two things you're doing. And I feel my sense is that you're gonna do more. And, um, and that just seems like a very interesting moment. I was excited to talk to you. And then I started thinking about like what I wanted to ask. I just need to show you what is in my notebook. What? This is the only thing I wrote down. <laughs> it's a happy with a question mark? Yeah. Am I happy? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm as happy as anyone can be when your happiness comes at the expense of so many other things, do you know? Like I'm incredibly fucking happy and I have like I've had one thing that's been strange is that um this period of like people's lives getting completely fucked in this country has coincided with really good personal years for me. And I never imagined, <laughs> you know, like I really never imagined that I would have like a stable media job, like let alone like a really good one. And be able to write a book and like feel like you don't have to be afraid that no one's going to read it and, you know, that no one will ever want to talk to you about it. Like, but I think all the time it's like, um, I feel a lot of like useless guilt about solidifying my own advantages at a time when people like the ground people stand on is being ripped away. And I feel um, a lot of emotional anxiety about the systems that connect us, <laughs> you know, like about the things that make my life more convenient are the things that are making other people's worse. Like my life is getting better because of systems that are making other people's lives worse. So I think about that all the time. But I think it's sort of like I was just talking um, to somebody about how I felt right when I got back from Peace Corps, where I had been just really, you know, as I wrote in the book, just taking Giardia shits in the backyard, you know, like showering once a week, like, you know, my lungs are full of tuberculosis, like, you know, just really not in my zone. <laughs> and I get back and like, you know, I the reality of being like, I think the, the discomfort I feel is like really just the discomfort also of just being in the global 1%, you know, and feeling that like, this is like, sorry, this is like so intense, but it's like, you know, feeling the reality of, you know, 10 years from now when there are millions more climate refugees, you'll probably be okay. And that makes me feel so crazy and also so lucky and so intent on like doing something with being alive. You know, and it's the feeling that I got when I came back from Peace Corps and I felt like, you know, my entire body was in the village where I lived, but my head was in, like, I felt very split psychically. And I would just like walk into the grocery store and like I said in the book, just burst into tears. And I was like, how is it possible that I can buy anything, anything that I want to eat, I can buy it right now. And, you know, and like realizing how few people in the world that's true for. And this sense of being just walking around as like a creature that got to be really happy, you know, and got to like, it, it's a kind of happiness that is like a particular kind of happy that is heightened and also complicated by its context. Anyway, I'm happy. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like you like it's like that Twitter thing. It's like Max nothing and I'm me I'm like well 10 years from now the global climate <laughs> not at all um, there's one other thing that happened after our last interview which I feel like I should tell people about what your dad wrote me an email can you please can you please 
Okay. Why are you trying to? Why do you try to own me? Why? Why does every one of these podcasts turning into you owning me? I'll let it go. What did he say? Was uh, it like he sent a very nice note that it was his favorite interview that you had done? Oh, and also the only thing I had missed was that you got a perfect SAT score when you were Stop. a sophomore in high school. God. Oh my god! Oh god! It's true. <laughs> Uh, fuck. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper. Our intern is Louisa Garberwit. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp. Go to readthissummer.com if you're looking for something to read. And Pit Writers. And thanks, uh, most of all, to Gia Tolentino for coming back on the show. It was really fun to talk to her. It's always really fun to talk to her. There's, like, uh, very few people in the world who are more fun to talk to. But uh, it was particularly fun to talk to her before this book came out. And she's getting all kinds of press and all kinds of praise. And, and it really couldn't be more deserved. But it was fun to get this... Uh, moment with her before all that started book is called trick mirror go get yourself a copy we'll see you next week